Hey, welcome back to another episode of Keeping Cozy. Today we have a really cool guest, Akshay Bargava of Malwarebytes, a cybersecurity company based in California. He's going to talk to us a little bit about cybersecurity as well as his journey from being an immigrant to the United States to um, going to Carnegie Mellon and then also MIT and then, you know, getting into the infamously hard to get into place McKinsey. So if that sounds interesting for you, please stay tuned and I hope you enjoy this video. Thanks again for your time. Hey, Akshay. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming to the podcast and I hope you've been well. I've been well. Yeah. Thank you, Jacob. It's great to, great to be here. Thanks for having me. How are things in, uh, in California? Things, well, things are, are okay. I mean, obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic and then we also have uh, the fire situation happening right now. We have a number of uh, fires blazing through Northern California. So just my, my hope and prayer to everyone in the Northern Bay Area and California overall, hope everyone's safe. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I echo that statement. Um, so let's just get, let's get started. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your career? Um, you know, Malwarebytes and, you know, McKinsey and all of the other, you know, Carnegie Mellon as a computer scientist. Yeah, could yeah. you walk us through it? Yeah, sure, happy to. So I started my career um, as a computer scientist. Um, I, I went to Carnegie Mellon uh, to, to get my BS in computer science. And then I, I went on to, to be in a software engineer and then eventually ended up at MIT Sloan. So at MIT Sloan, I did my MBA with a focus in entrepreneurship and innovation. And from MIT, I went on to McKinsey and Company. So at McKinsey, I, I served a lot of C-level executives as well as a board of directors on various different topics. And, and mostly in the, in the tech space. So related to technology, serving um, many variety of different companies. And then there I went on to work in cybersecurity because that was a theme that I kept hearing over and over from a clients. Um, so I went on to work at a company called FireEye and, and then I was an executive at Oracle and I'm currently the chief product officer at Malwarebytes, which is a, a cybersecurity company focused um, to help consumers as well as uh, corporations stay safe and secure. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about um, you know your passion for technology and kind of um, you know is cybersecurity always been a, a threat that's you know existed since the start of computing, or is it just gone much and much worse as we've gone on? You know, it's it's a great question. I think you know cybersecurity has been a threat always ever since you know the the technology has become available bad guys are trying to take advantage of technology for um, you know, nefarious purposes. What happened recently, Jacob, is that the level of threats, the amount of threats, and the sophistication of those threats have drastically increased. And so I'll give you a few examples here. You know, we're, we're living in a pandemic right now. We got COVID going on. So it's amazing. The type of threats that we're seeing now are very, there's a lot of new scams, new techniques of malware that are taking advantage of COVID. So, for example, there's, you know, there's impersonation of the World Health Organization, as an example, that's being used to um, propagate malware. So what you're seeing is cyber have always been around. They, they have been increasing and attackers are very sophisticated and they take advantage of um, the current situation to cause fear and, and also take advantage to monetize. Yeah. So, well, here's a question, you know, for someone who's not particularly well-versed on, um, you know, cybersecurity and like big data, what is the like interplay between the two of them? 
Um, cause you see yeah. a lot of people, you know, talking about the dangers of big data and, you know, um, you know, like Facebook harvesting data. Is that something we should be afraid of, especially because of, uh, because of malware and things like that, or is it totally interdependent? No, it's a, there, there is a strong relationship there. And on one hand, data can help, you know, lots of data about threats, about individuals can help build better cybersecurity. On the other hand, having a lot of data and information about a specific individual or specific company can help an attacker make a very, um, very compelling, very targeted attack. So data can both be an ally to help build better cybersecurity. It can also be an ally to cyber criminals who are trying to create very targeted attacks. Yeah. And so here's something that's kind of, uh, I know you've written about it, but could you talk a little bit about the Cambridge Analytica scandal and, you know, is that something at all related to cybersecurity or is that something, you know, that is just a big data concern? You know, so I think when you think about that as a broader genre of, of issue, fundamentally it boils down to individuals' privacy and how your consumer's privacy is being captured and how it's being utilized. And today, one of the big problems is, as a consumer, I'm oftentimes, I don't even know who has access to my data, how it's being used. And, and so whether it's being used for nefarious purposes or for purposes that I would not endorse, I may not even be in the loop or know that. Now, when you think about Cambridge Analytica, Cambridge Analytica, essentially they're able to you know, capture a lot of data about individuals, use that data um, to understand which individuals are more likely to be influenced and then use that in their favor to try and influence people. So as an individual, if you knew that you're being targeted and that you are trying to be, your opinions may be trying to be manipulated, people don't have a way to opt in or out to that, right? So that's part of the, the gist of what this topic is touching on, right? Yeah. So can you, can you elaborate on opting in? Is that like, you know, um, is this something in the future that, you know, we're going to have greater control over where our data is used? Or is this something that, you know, uh, is, there's, you know, kind of, a lot of, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Jacob, I think that that is, there are some different regulations that's out there. There's some different proposals um, around how consumers should have more control over the data and how it's being used. Um, and and consumers should have the option to opt in and out. So that is something that new regulation is, is being recommended and, and mandated in certain cases. But I think the bigger challenge, Jacob, is that most consumers don't have that level of sophistication, that level of insight or knowledge of how data about them can be used um, against them. And so that is part of the education and awareness and a lot of people don't even think that managing their privacy or protecting their privacy is so important. And, and part of that is because they don't understand the downsides of that. Yeah. Well, what are the down? Why should I care? Like when I think of, you know, I'm using Google, I'm using uh, Facebook. I, you know, post this on YouTube. Um, this, those are like really helpful tools that I'm using to promote my podcast. But why should I, you know, why should I care that they're trying to monetize off of my data? Yeah. And so I think that two things, I think one is that it depends on your comfort level, right? I think um, on one hand, as long as you understand what the threats are um, and, and you're okay with that, that's a point of view. But a lot of people, as they learn more about how this data can be used, um, you know, against you or used um, 
in conjunction to, to have you fall prey for scams or other things or find your vulnerabilities and take advantage of it, people become more concerned about what data should be allowed and how it should be allowed to be used of it. So, so what, what could happen? What could happen? Like, what is, you know, like the worst case scenario for, for people, you know, like, I, I don't think people understand like what the visual, like, this is what will have, this is, you know, the boogeyman of, of big data and cybersecurity. Yeah. So I think there's a few different things that can happen now. And I'll give you a few examples of different types of threats that exist. Now, there's no one source that will make those things happen, but I'll just give you a few different examples. So one type of threat that I've talked quite a bit about that's emerging recently are, are threats like stalkerware, right? So stalkerware essentially provides um, an abuser access to an individual with information about their location, potentially can compromise their bank information, all their history. Their, so that is a, a real um, extreme case where your privacy is completely violated, right? Um, so that's an example where if you think about it today, Jacob, how much of your life exists on your phone, right? Right. So like who you're talking to, when you're talking to them, where you are, your bank information, your social media, all of that resides in your phone. So having access to that, people can have a deep, intimate access to everything about you. And if they manipulate or use that, maybe that's your bank account to steal money from you. It could be your, your location to track where you are. And in some cases, even um, and in the case of a, an abuser, to be able to find you when you may want to avoid that person. So that's kind of one extreme, if you will, of how having access to information can be used against you. There's a lot of other scenarios. There's other scenarios that you may say are maybe a bit um, milder, but also for a lot of people are not great scenarios. So for example, you know, COVID. And during COVID, the number of COVID scams that are happening are at an all-time high. And so the Federal Trade Commission reported that in the first few months of COVID, there were over 14,000 scams and took away $10 million from consumers in the United States who fell for these scams. And a lot of these scams were things like, hey, would you like to learn about COVID? Would you like to learn about how you can protect yourself from COVID? So these scams also, with people, when information about in individuals is known, they can be highly targeted for some of these scams. Um, email phishing campaigns and, and lots yeah. of so, 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 you know, t yeah, pivoting this to young, young adults and young professionals and college students, um, you know, what is the biggest concern for them? Like, I think we're a little bit more savvy than when you think of like traditional internet scams, you think of like the email, you know, like, you know, the Nigerian prince wants, you know, $5,000 and he'll give you a billion dollars in return. So young right. people, I think are a bit savvier than that, but what would happen for, for, you know, people like me who are, you know, a little bit more savvy than to fall for, you know, an email scam like that, but probably are not going to like understand the, the complexities of big data, uh, cybersecurity issues. Yeah. So I think Jacob, the thing that I think every young person should understand is the, the threats out there are much broader than just, um, than just the Nigerian prince. And guess what? One of the people, one of the groups of people that innovate the fastest and are the quickest to use new technology are also cyber criminals, right? And cyber criminals are continue to become more savvy. They continue to build attacks that are very targeted and, and they're very persistent. So I think the first thing that people should understand, young people, is that cyber threats are not going away. Cyber threats are only rising. And I don't know, I, I, you know, one of the things that I noticed is a lot of younger people 
um, use Macs. That's a trend, the Mac number of Macs is growing. Well, guess what? Did you know this, Jacob? The number of Mac threats is the fastest growing platform with threats. There's more Mac threats you know, that Malwarebytes has discovered per device than on Windows machines. Well, that's a huge new trend. So I think one of the things that young people should realize is that they need to be more proactive and take ownership of protecting their devices, protecting their identity, and protecting their privacy. Yeah, and how, well, how, how do we do that? So the first step, so there's a few things that I'd recommend. Um, the first thing is, and, and it sounds like people like you may be already very sharp on this, but just understanding how social engineering and some of these threats work, because that way you'll be less prone to falling prey to them. The second thing that I recommend every person to do is, is install a, a you know, basic protection for your devices, right? So install an antivirus, make sure that you don't get infected. If, you know, if you do happen to fall for something you didn't realize, at least you can make sure that your device doesn't have, right? So have an AV solution on your machine. And then the third thing is, you know, get a privacy solution. You know, make sure that you're able to browse securely and your identity is protected when, you know, as you're browsing online. So I think those are three simple things that everybody should do. Start on social engineering, have an AV, have a privacy solution. Well, you know, just kind of staying on that, on the theme of, you know, you know, youth or whatever. Uh, could you talk us a little bit about your immigrant experience to the United States and how you came here? Um, what was it like for you? What were some of the challenges? Was your family, what kind of immigrant family were you in? Yeah, sure. So basically my immigration story is my parents immigrated to the United States when I was two years old from India. And so, um, you know, I'm a first generation American. I've, you know, I've been raised in the United States, but I've learned a lot from having um, immigrant parents and, and learning to live in, you know, both the ideal culture that my parents came from and that they wanted to build their family around, as well as assimilating in, in the United States and, and balancing through that. So, you know, my, my experience has been, you know, I feel very fortunate for what my parents have done to raise us and, and inculcate a lot of the, the great things that I, I value about the culture that they came from and also balance it with a lot of the things that you want from the American dream and having access to that. So what, what part of America did you, did you come to? So my parents first came to Ohio where they were graduates. And so that was a, that was obviously a challenging time for them to both be in grad school while having a toddler. And then they moved to California and, and I've spent um, a good chunk of my life in, in California and the Bay area. So, so how old were you when, um, you know, when you first moved to California? I was five years old. Okay. So you spent pretty much your whole life, you know, there. And so what was it like growing up in the Bay area, uh, when you were younger, was it as, you know, it's one of the most progressive parts of the United States now, but I'm sure there must've been some, you know, challenges that you faced because of being slightly different or was the, you know, I know there's a huge influx of Indian immigrants to the Bay area, especially now. Was that present back then? You know, it was something that childhood, it changed and I could see, you know, the, the, both the places that I lived, as well as um, the inflow of immigrant population um, increased as I got older. So basically, I went from a where when I was in, you know, elementary school to being different, if you will, like I, from my appearance, from my cultural background, I stood out. So by the time I went to high school, there was, 
you know, I was surrounded with a lot of people that were like me. That's a very interesting trend because I also, as I was growing, I got to see the Bay Area also change in its demographics. Yeah. Well, you know, so here's one of the big things that, you know, we've been all hearing about with, with the Bay Area. Um, you know, there's a lot of gentrification and, you know, big tech is kind of taking up places. Uh, no, people have to move out because you can't afford, I think the poverty line in like San Francisco, the city is something like $90,000. And I know that this isn't something, you know, that you're an expert on or anything, but where do you see the future of, you know, housing in the Bay Area? Are there like, you know, amongst the tech people, are there solutions to work with the communities to make things more affordable? I think the, I think the short answer is that the, the companies and the government, they have to come together to solve this problem, right? Because one of the things that's happened in the Bay Area is with tech, you know, the cost of living has gone up. And for people who are not in the tech industry, for many of them, it's become unaffordable. And so there's many different ways to solve that. And I think, you know, kudos to some of the tech companies who are helping in, in playing a part in trying to solve that problem. It is a complex problem. And, and like you said, Jacob, I'm not an expert on it. But some of the things that I think are, are essential to do is, you know, we need to create more, more scalable housing in the Bay Area, for one thing, because the Bay Area, you know, there's not a lot of high-rise buildings. There's not a lot of, you know, opportunities for people, um, you know, to, to scale with the population growth. You know, the infrastructure in terms of transportation, other things, you know, there's a lot of traffic, you know, things of that sort. So I do think that technology can play a lot of role, a, a bigger role in making the Bay Area more livable for everyone and, and also bring the cost down as we implement some of these solutions. The cost for living, the cost for transportation, et cetera, et cetera. Now, so, you know, pivoting this to, you know, some more practical career advice. Uh, you know, you, you got into MIT's business school, which is, you know, extremely impressive. How important do you think, uh, you know, a top tier business school is in terms of cracking into not only tech, but also, you know, the famous places like McKinsey, top tier consulting firms. And yeah, how, how important is that, you know, big graduate yeah. degree? You know, I do think, look, it definitely helps. There, there's no doubt about it, that it helps. But at the same time, it's not, it's not an essential ingredient. And I think what you get out of the big, um, big name schools is a lot more of the networking, the access to information, the advice, the mentorship. And those are a lot of things that I was fortunate to have and that helped me in my career. So I think that in some sense, the access to those things becomes a lot easier when you're in a big school. It doesn't mean that access is not there for if you're not in a big school, but sometimes you may, you know, if you're not in a, in a, in a program or you're not in a school, you have to work harder and be more proactive to to learn and find access to those things. So that's kind of where I think a school like MIT is, is terrific because you get access to so many wonderful people, professors, research, you know, ideas to technology, and that helps round you out as an individual. And it makes it easy to do that because you're surrounded in that environment day in, day out. Yeah. Well, you know, do you think there's a little bit of an unfairness for, you know, because getting into those schools are somewhat arbitrary um, or whatever. And, you know, there's it's obviously skewed towards more Asians and white Americans. So how do you think uh, the future is going to look like with specifically those top tier institutions? And then also, I know, uh, especially at least in banking, you know, one of the conversations that we've had is that they're moving a little bit away from just extremely prestigious institutions 
towards using yeah. more you know diversity programs is that something that's happening in tech it is absolutely happening and i think it's much needed and i'm so glad that we are moving to a model where you know companies are more seriously taking diversity and inclusion as a key um, you know key topic of or key theme that they're focused on as well as corporate social responsibility you know there was a day jacob you know not too long ago 10 15 years ago where a lot of board of directors the primary thing that they would talk about was profit and loss and revenue growth right those were like the two big pillars you felt but over time what's happened is as we become more modern in our boards we started thinking about more issues we start thinking about risk right cybersecurity and risk we start thinking about diversity inclusion corporate social responsibility thinking about the environment we're starting to move to a model where companies need to embrace all their stakeholders right whether it's not just shareholders not just employees not just customers but the environment the communities around them and so i'm really excited and optimistic about this trend that i see and 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 i hope that we continue to invest in it and bring more diversity and inclusion into the force, into the board, into the leadership. And, and it's also really important to, to note, Jacob, that it's not just diversity, right? Diversity is one aspect, but everyone needs to, everyone who's there at the table should feel like they belong, feel included, feel part of it. And one of the things right now that happens is even though there is some diversity, the diversity is not broad enough. Um, it's concentrated in certain ways that some groups are still underrepresented. And so what we need to do is make sure that everyone is not only diverse, but also everyone feels included at the table. Yeah. Now, so can you talk a little bit about like the, the dynamics of being an Asian American in these situations? Because, you know, when we had the, um, the first uh, African-American female black president of MIT, you know, um, one of the things it, that's important to remember is that, you know, I, as an Indian American, um, am, you know, in these kinds of college institutions are sometimes overrepresented. So is that the case? And in tech, you see it a lot, you know, a lot of the top tier um, CEOs of big tech companies are Indians. So is there, what is the difference between, you know, being an Indian in these kinds of table, uh, at these kinds of, having a seat at that kind of table as being an Indian? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a great question. And it's one where I think, you know, in, in many ways, like you said, in tech, Indian American is not an underrepresented, um, you know, it's, it's in, in some cases, it's actually at par, or maybe even overrepresented, right? So this is one of the things that I think, as we think about diversity and inclusion, it's about leveling the playing field. It's about making sure that all voices are heard. And it's about, you know, for a company, especially like a company like Malwarebytes, we're a consumer product company. So for us, it's also really important to bring in diversity, uh, you know, to represent the type of consumers that we sell to into our thought process, into our product um, and, and our user experience to make sure that it, it's accessible and, and works for all types of uh, cultures and, 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 and diversity is a key part of that. So I think it's, I think it's important to be mindful of that and, and be more of an advocate, at, you know, what culture you are. If you do have a seat at the table, be an advocate for diversity and inclusion. And that's the things that, that I try to invite. And so, well, here's perhaps a controversial question. Um, a lot of people who are Asian Americans and, you know, white Americans, a lot of there's, you know, Yale just recently had, uh, you know, a, a case come out that they actually, in fact, discriminate against Asian Americans who apply. 
Um, and a lot of, there is a lot of anxiety. I went to a predominantly Asian high school, um, or predominantly white and Asian high school, uh, where it, there feels like, you know, that they're not, they're getting passed on opportunities that they otherwise would be deserving for because of diversity programs. So could you talk a little bit about the dynamics of that situation? Yeah, I think, look, I think that is something that I can understand why certain people feel that way. But there's always, when you think about global diversity and inclusion and doing things that are best for the community, there's always going to be, um, you know, some group or some representation that is going to be limited relative to creating space for the more diverse um, groups. So that is always going to be a trade-off. And I think the important thing is as society, as leaders, as individuals, we need to be okay and, and understand why we're making, you know, why we're deciding to do that. And it's not easy for that individual who might feel like they deserve that spot and they didn't get it or, or whatever the case may be. But at a society level, at a, at a um, nation level, nation state level, those are the, the right decisions and the ones that I think we need to make. Um, the other thing that we need to do is also make sure that we do have enough opportunities for all our youth to succeed and, and have opportunities. You know, whether you get into school A or B or C, you know, shouldn't, you know, should matter less as long as you have an opportunity to go to a school, right, a top school. So this is the other thing is I think some people have a very strong perception, like I'm only going to go to one of these three schools. Well, I think one of the things we need to do as individuals is expand our horizons and, and think a little bit more broadly about and, and be thankful that in America, all of us um, you know, can have opportunities to get an education, to go to school, and diversity needs to help make sure that the right people are getting opportunities at the right levels and for the right fields and in the right institutions. Yeah, well, here's, uh, here's perhaps the million dollar question. Uh, what is cracking the code like in uh, McKinsey? Because it's one of the most famously hard places to get a job at. Has, you know, there's so many books that are written on just getting in, you know, acing the interviews. So could you talk a little bit about your experience getting in and you know, advice that you'd give for potential college students and young professionals who want to transition there? Sure, no, happy to, and I think I'll tell you a few things that you may not find in the books, um, but I think from my perspective, there's really three aspects to preparing and, and getting, getting one of these roles. And the first is the prep. And like you said, there's a lot of things out there on how to crack the case, how to prepare for the case, how to you know, practice with your peers on the case. So that part I think is probably the most well understood. The other two really where I think a lot of the difference comes from is as you go through the interview process, and I'm not going to um, deny the fact that the second element really is luck. There is some element of luck. When you are, when you are um, interviewing against a cohort of really brilliant other people and only a small number are going to so be selected, there is some luck that comes into that. And, and I can talk to you about some of the luck that, that I was uh, fortuitous for. And then the third piece, I think, is really a, a state of mind or an attitude around how you or a presence, if you will. But it's almost like a presence and an attitude. And, and, and really, I think you know, a lot of people, as they go through the interview process, they're looking at candidates and saying, is this someone I can envision being a partner at this firm? Does this person exude the confidence, the demeanor, the presence that they could grow and, and stand in front of a CEO or a board member and, and have a, 
you know, have the right conversation. So I think the third part is really the presence. So those three things all come together in the interview. And, and yeah, and the second element is luck. And, and luck is, is a factor in this. So you got to do the hard work. you got to do the prep. you got to hope to get you know, some of the, the luck working in your favor and, and also have the right presence. Yeah, so you kind of you alluded that there is uh, some luck in your specific case. Do you want to perhaps elaborate yeah, on that? Yeah, sure, sure. And so maybe, so yeah, so what happened in my scenario was, you know, I interviewed for McKinsey and the first round happens on, on campus. So in, in Boston and Cambridge, I, I cleared the first round. And then the, the final round happened in the office where you're going to interview. So when I came in for my interview, I, I was so excited and and my very first interview of the day, I had a day full of interviews. My very first interview, I walked in and it was a case interview. And in the case, uh, you know, we had to solve some math and I was doing some math and the interviewer turned to me and said, hey, are you sure about your math? Are you sure? I said, yeah, absolutely, I'm sure. And we continued to go through the case. At one point, towards the end, I realized I'd made not one, but two mathematical mistakes in my calculation. Now, making a mathematical mistake in one of these interviews is like a cardinal sin. It's like, you know, like, and, and I made not one, but two. So at that point, I really felt like, you know, right in the morning, interview number one, I, in the back of my head, I was like, oh man, I really blew it. There's no way I'm getting this interview. So as I transitioned from my first interview to my next, I kind of told myself, I said, look, at this point, I'm, I'm not going to get this job, but let me enjoy the rest of the day. Let me try to make the most of it, see what I can learn. And my executive, and I, I really focused on more of my executive presence and, and trying to learn and have the most of it. And I had zero expectations of what was going to come out of it. And I think that the element of luck for me is, you know, what I thought was a cardinal sin, something I would, not, you know, definitely got rejected. I ended up still getting, getting the job. And for me, that was a huge surprise, a, a shock you know, the next day when they called me and gave me that, that offer. A big part of it really was when I went into my final interview with the senior partner, it was a grueling interview. It was like one of the most grueling interviews I've been in because the senior partner was trying to gauge, you know, my depth and breadth of knowledge and, and how I stand my ground. And I thought that having the right presence um, was really important to overcome that. And so the luck was you know, getting a lucky break from some mistakes I made and, and having a strong supporter in, in the senior partner. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, you know, perhaps for a practical piece of advice for paying it forward, um, what is something you'd look for when you inter interview um, an applicant? You mean at, at Malware Bites or at McKinsey? Just in general, you know, like, um, general, and yeah. maybe if you have a specific, you know, trait, what is a degree uh, that you could look for if you're someone who's getting into a place like McKinsey or a place like Malware Bites? <laughs> Anything you'd recommend? You know, the biggest thing that I would say is that one of the things that I really value, even when I was at MIT, is, you know, there's a lot of very talented, smart people out there. But the people who stand out are people who, at least in my eyes, people who are humble, people who are willing to learn, people who are willing to iterate. The personality and characteristics of, of, a, of a candidate often can surpass what they know or don't know, or even their experiences. And so this is something I would encourage everyone is to have a mindset, of, a growth mindset, a, mind, you know, a mindset of continually growing and improving, and, and also continue to maintain 
humility, no matter what you achieve in your career. So those would be my, my, so, so, but would you have any, pre like, you know, very specific, like, should you learn to code? Um, should you, you know, is, is there something you'd, you know, specifically say, this is the holy grail of skill that you need to have besides, you know, humility? Well, yeah. I mean, if it, when it comes to like technical skills and other things, I think there is a broad variety of things. You know, this is one of those things where there's no generic answer. There's no, unfortunately for your listeners, there's no one generic answer like, hey, this is the one thing you should know. Reality is that depending on what your goal is, there's many different paths to get to that goal. And so one of the things that I would encourage a lot of younger people to do, especially college, is, is map out kind of where, where do you see people who are really successful and what have they done? And try to map out five or different you know, five or so pads of how people have transitioned to that. And so that way it just opens your horizon to understand how people go from A to B. And I did, and I learned for myself was I really wanted to be a C-level executive. And when I came to that realization, I was in college or just becoming a software engineer. And there are many different pads that could have taken me to that. But I also wanted to optimize for things that I really and I really wanted to learn in my career. And so I value things like, you know, in the world, making contacts with C-level executives, getting exposure to board of directors. And so I paved my path in a way where I went to business school and I tried to get into a top management consulting firm because I wanted those experiences. I wanted to grow personally and professionally in those ways. And that happens to be a path that also leads to um, where my, you know, where my goal was. There's other paths I could have taken where I didn't need to go to business school or didn't need to become a management consultant. But that's the path I chose because that's the one I was passionate about and it helped develop me as an individual. So uh, here's another question. A lot of students are, you know, the kinds of people who end up going to startups out of college. Um, nice. You know, what is the dynamic between choosing between a you know a big company out of college versus a startup, and how does it look like on the on when you look at a resume, and if right. someone's worked at you know two or three startups versus someone's been at you know a management consulting place for you know five years, um, what would you yeah how would and you I, explain and that? I really like this question. I was gonna say one Jacob is that even my own scenario this was kind of a dilemma that or a question that I was asking myself when I. Andy Mellon as a computer scientist, because on one hand, I had a phenomenal startup and the startup was founded by um, another professor at Caltech. And then I had your kind of typical large company offers, right, from Microsoft and others. So for me, it was the same question I, I asked myself. And I think they're both of them, by the way, if you have those options, congratulations, because I think they're both terrific options. So, so kudos and, and pat yourself on the back before you before you make a decision, but the paths take you slightly different places. And so that's what I think you should be mindful of. What are the pros and cons of choosing an option? For me, the startup, the appeal of a startup was, you know, you get to take on more responsibility. You know, the company was going to be fast growing. You know, you get access to a lot of the executives. You get to wear multiple. So for me, these things were very, very attractive about the ways that I wanted to grow. In a large company, some of the benefits were you learn a lot of the best practices. You work with a lot of engineers. You work across a lot of teams, a lot of functions. You learn a lot more about process and discipline, and, and you learn the interworkings of, of a big company, and there, there's so many of them. So 
those are a lot of really good things to learn. But it just depends on you know, what things you want to prioritize to learn and where you see your career going. Um, for me, I chose a smaller company route because I really wanted the opportunity to, you know, to be more hands-on, to do more things, and, and also to play more roles. You know? So that, that's what my decision-making came down to. Yeah. Well, so here's our, our, you know, the final question I want to ask you is, um, uh, you know, Kamala Harris is a Bay Area Indian person who has just been nominated to be the vice president of the United States if Joe Biden gets elected. What is the uh, what is the you know sentiment like amongst the Bay Area Indian community right now, knowing that one of their own may be in the White House? You know, I think there's definitely a sense of of joy and pride just around the representation, not and not just not just the fact that she's, you know, African-American or Indian-American or, you know, but also the fact that she's a, a female candidate as well. So on the gender and diversity and inclusion that we talked about earlier, she represents so much of that. And so I think what it, what it really opens up, you know, not just for me, but I think for anyone, is the realization about the possibilities and the opportunities that America provides. And I think there is an aspect of being able to relate to someone like Kamala Harris based on her, her heritage and other things. But I think for me, the bigger thing is the possibilities and opportunities that this is going to create for the next generation of, of students and young children to say, there's nothing that holds me back. You know, no matter what you know, gender I am, no matter what ethnicity I come from, no, what, no matter what socioeconomic status, the opportunity in America is there to reach the very top of, of government. So I think the part that really excites me. So what about just you specifically as being a five-year-old kid who grew up in San Francisco? You know, is there yes. any just personal joy just from that? Absolutely. I mean, like there is, there is some charm to that as well. Um, but, but to be very transparent, I think for me, the joy is much more around the opportunity and the possibilities and really this representing the American dream for every single person. It's a light of hope for anybody who's, you know, no matter where you live, if it's San Francisco or it's wherever, but the possibility of, of what uh, can unfold in America. That's really what's... Any final pieces of advice? You know, for, for students, I think the, you know, the one thing that I might say in closing is I think, you know, when I reflect back on when I was a college student and kind of how my journeys evolved, you know, the one thing that I'll say is that you know, a lot of times as students, we really focus on what's next or what's the next great thing. And my thought to you is to take some time and just reflect on where you are right now, because this is actually one of the best times of your life. You're going to look back 20 years, 30 years later and say, when I was in college or when I was going through this journey, it seemed so tough, but those were actually some of the best days of my life. So I just want to encourage all the students, um, you know, enjoy this time, be fortunate to have this. And, and also some of the decisions that you're going to make, feel fortunate that you have the opportunity to, to think about these and make these decisions because later on you're going to reflect and, and realize, you know, these were some really precious times. And so enjoy the journey, not just the destinations. That would be my biggest advice. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time and for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Jason. Uh, thank you, Jacob. Really appreciate it.